Hey everybody, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander, I am the host of this podcast, and I'm excited to announce that finally my new lecture series on transformational work is finally out. It's five video lectures and one audio lecture. Of course, I will link it up in the show notes of this episode. If you are somebody that, well, I guess the most obvious is if you're somebody that is interested in transformational work yourself, that engages in the process of transformational work, and then also if you're somebody that understands themselves as a healer or a guide or a coach or a practitioner of some kind that aids in the process of other people's transformational work, then I think this lecture series is really built with you in mind. And what I'm doing between all six of these lectures is not trying to lay out a comprehensive philosophy of transformation, but rather I'm doing exactly what the subtitle of it says, Psychological and Spiritual Reflections on Transformational Work. So I'm posing the question, what is it that happens when we go through a transformational process? What happens psychologically for us? What happens spiritually for us? And I outline a number of models that we can use to contextualize and understand the process. In fact, the first two uh, lectures are called Psyche as Process. And then the next two lectures, three and four, are about really understanding what are the what are the different phases of transformation? And not only what are those phases, but what does it feel like when we're going through them? Because I think if you can map your own experience onto the phases of transformation, then it can help you contextualize where it is that you're at. And honestly, one of the most difficult things of overcoming a transformational process or going through a transformational process is the injection in chaos of chaos, right? Which is a loss of order. Those are basically saying the same thing. And because when we go through a holistic transformational process, which is what I try to make a case for what I'm talking about in this lecture series, when we go through that, we don't know who we're becoming, otherwise we wouldn't be transforming, right? And so we don't exactly know where we're going, and that can be really uh, destabilizing and difficult. And throughout the lectures, I really go back and forth talking about from the guide perspective, you know, the practitioner perspective, and then also from the client perspective, because, you know, even if we are guides, it's really foolhardy to to forget that we're also of the nature to transform and that we that we constantly are transforming. And then in lecture five, I talk about myth and transformation, something I talk about on here all the time. And then the final lecture, Transformation in Nature, talks about the sort of natural process of transformation and how we can aid in that. You know, in the West, we often think that if we want something to happen, that we have to make it happen. But actually, I think Oftentimes we need to get out of the way and we need to allow spirit, allow the divine to transform through us, to transform us from the inside out. So I am just really, really excited, as you can tell, to launch this lecture series. It's available at rickalexander.com in the store, but as I said, I will put it in the show notes of this episode. Now, for this episode, what I'm going to do is I'm going to air chapter four of my book, at least most of it, called The Soul's Keeper. 
And the reason I want to air this one today is, one, I don't think I've aired this on the podcast before. And of course, I'll link up all of the ways to get my book in the show notes as well. But in this podcast, I really talk about the push and pull and the dynamic interplay between the ego and the individual soul and how that push and pull tends to manifest in real life. And I talk about this idea in this chapter called the nudge from the deep, these nudges that we get that kind of point us toward our genuine or authentic path in life. And that nudge is often the thing that actually is the catalyst for our real transformation, a holistic transformational process. And so I figured it would be uh, kind of a good thing to air today. I know people are starting to pick this lecture series up. People that were uh, on the wait list for it are starting to pick it up. And so this would just give us a, a good sort of framework or, or groundwork, ground understanding of the push and pull that happens that leads us into a process of transformation. Anyway, without further ado, on to the show. Mahatma Gandhi said that when the ego dies, the soul awakes. Our current culture has produced a pattern. Endless people engage in endless hustle, only to realize that the hand currently gripping all of their material will inevitably become the dirt that grows the trees, which will eventually be converted to money for someone else to grab. This is without exception. The greatest human hope is that we wake up to who and what we really are before the conversion to dirt. Given that this is the game society has manufactured, the question becomes, how do we engage with it in a way that still leaves us room for contentment? If we still want to participate in the ongoing creation of the world around us, which most of us have a deep desire to do because we are, after all, social animals, we must find the path that lies between the relinquishing of material held by the monks and the worship of material held by the ego. Since most people are uninterested in the path of the former, we will focus on how to get what we want by transcending the latter. At a fundamental level, your ego is a collection of thought patterns that have been formed in your mind based on the world that you've experienced. It's quite literally the I that you think of whenever you think about yourself. The word ego translated literally from the ancient cultures it came out of, namely Greek and Latin, means I. It's part of you, but it's certainly not all of you. It's your formulated blueprint that tells you how to stay safe while navigating the world as a finite I. When religions, myth, and stories focus on reminding the hero who they truly are, it is to remind them that they are far more than the finite I that speaks on behalf of their personality. If you want to understand your ego better, you can start by looking at your first reactions to the world around you. Your first thought about any given thing you experience tends to reflect your conditioning before your true desires. This is partly why we seem to have so much trouble aligning our reactions with our best interest. It's also why the quicker you react to something, either negative or positive, the greater the chance of you reacting with an error. When someone cuts you off, it's your ego that pipes up next. When someone walks by you and their appearance isn't up to your standards, it is the voice of the ego that you hear in your head judging them. When you hear of a good opportunity to make money, it's your ego that wants to take said opportunity before seeing if it's in alignment with what you really want for your life or if you'll be happy doing whatever it is that said opportunity will have you doing. 
The ego only understands where it is in the world based on hierarchies, which makes it the primary target for all get-rich-quick schemes, snake oil salesmen and charlatans, who promise that they have the answer that will make you feel whole. The hierarchy that is easiest for the ego to make sense of and climb is the one based on net worth and status. This is why we have so much trouble separating our identity from the material that we gain. Though we know intellectually that we will be taking none of what we can amass with us when we go. Nor do we want our spirit still clinging to it once we've gone. The ego in search of the feeling of wholeness will likely try to find many places to fit its identity throughout the first half of our lives. Let us talk for a minute about this underlying desire for wholeness. Since we all feel this deep emptiness on some level, we must learn to address it so that we can get through it. Imagine for a moment that you are sitting in King Arthur's court, preparing for your quest to find the holy grail of wholeness and meaning. Your soul, the benevolent king who gives graciously and understands all, is at one end of the table, waiting patiently for the chance to speak. The ego, young and eager to make a name for itself, is at the other end of the table, taking notes as each of your sub-personalities and motivations speak up. The ego is the filter for these subpersonalities and will make the overall decision to the extent that you allow it to. Each one of your subpersonalities is given a seat at the table. Fear is sitting over to the right, and as it proposes plans to reach wholeness, you realize quickly that it is not interested in any real quest for meaning. Fear doesn't want to go anywhere or do anything involving risk, and you know for sure that risk is the price of a worthy life. You let fear express his concerns, but he obviously can't dictate the direction of the quest, or you won't get anywhere. It becomes quite clear that fear wants safe nothingness for the future of your kingdom. Ambition then speaks up next. Ambition has been validated all your life, so he will be the one the ego wants to listen to. He's passionate and compelling, but you know that if he drives completely, he's likely to keep questing far past satisfaction. His appetite is insatiable. So if you follow him alone, it's likely that you'll end up on some desolate road, far from home, conquering without knowing why and thirsting for what you know you'll never have. Ambition will get its own chapter later on. After fear and ambition go back and forth for a while, insecurity, doubt, courage, faith, hope, and love all say their peace. The ego who has been listening to the deliberation tells you that he has the plan, that he understands what he must do to bring back the holy grail of wholeness. The soul will listen. Though ultimately in charge, the soul is the wise elder who knows the ego must learn of its own limitations and capabilities through experience. If the ego wants to learn through pain, the soul will let that happen. Over the course of your life, the ego will take you to all sorts of far-reaching places. You'll be sitting in religious services, and though you probably don't buy the full menu being sold, the people around you will be nodding their head in understanding. So you will wait patiently to see if this is it. You'll find yourself falling in love with people who drive you the best kind of crazy. And because love is the language of God, you will feel a moment of completion and the satisfaction of passionate romance before being banished from Eden. Some people will go mad trying to find the person who once completed them, but no one gets back into Eden the same way they left. You'll find yourself blissed out on drugs, and that first high will inflate the ego so much that it will momentarily know God's love and believe it has found the path. Over time, the highs will be lower and lower, and if you aren't careful, that route will take everything you have, including the soul seat at the table. You'll find yourself in careers that offer upward mobility, and the ego will be sure that this time, they've finally figured it out. Just a little more work and a little more sacrifice and we'll be there. 
Soon you realize that the ego solution is always just around the corner. Knowing that meaning is so close and yet so far will beat down a human spirit over enough time. The worst kind of suffering is to be surrounded by goodness, but so enchanted by the ego's future plans that you are unable to touch or taste it. Eventually, after the ego sends you on enough quests and you come to grips with the fact that it doesn't know what to do and has tried everything, it will be ready to hand the keys of the kingdom over to the soul. Then, the true quest can begin. Then you'll be ready to answer your call to adventure. All your life, you will find that desires of the ego appear to be at odds with what you want deep down. The deep down desires are born of the soul, and they are the reason you're actually here. The ego sees the world as a zero-sum game, with only so many resources and opportunities, and because of the fear that drives it, it must take as much as it can, and it must do it soon. You can always convince yourself into not truly going after what you want deep down, because the loudest voice you have is the ego and it will present lots of compelling evidence for getting what you need right now. The money and the opportunities won't be there forever, so you must seize them now. Later, once you are secure, then you can do what you really want to do. This is another great lie of the ego, because what's actually true is that money and opportunity will always exist. It's you that will not. The soul, which is boundless outside of your body, knows that you are here for more. It knows that opportunities are endless and the world actually has far more than enough for all of us if we could just start acting like it. When you live out of abundance, you're starting to live at a soul level. You have something to give or do that is uniquely yours. Most likely, deep down, you know what this is. If you do not yet know, rest assured that your soul will give you nudges when it can no longer accept the parameters that the ego has put on it. Through my work, I keep finding people who have the nudge but have built their lives on the path of the ego. At this time in our history, most humans are still living out of ego consciousness. And people haven't yet woken up to the fact that life isn't about what and where you can get. This is why, if you ask for advice when you start feeling the nudge of the soul, most people will not encourage you to follow it. Instead, you will be encouraged to stay the path. When leaving the military, after 12 years of service because of my own soul's nudge, I couldn't believe how many unhappy people encouraged me to remain unhappy. What we find is that if we want to pivot away from the empire the ego has built, however big or small that pivot is, we run into some serious internal dialogue that tells us not to. The ego will try its best to convince us that we are too invested in what we've done, that we've come too far, or that we've built too much status to leave. I found myself stuck between the worlds of what I felt like I was being called to do and what the world expected me to do. I was six months from transitioning out of the military and had no idea what I was going to do when I got out. I had two job offers that would give me more comfort and status than I had in the military, but they were not at all what I felt called to do when I got out. I felt truly called to write about the human experience. I just couldn't bring myself to tell the people who loved me that I was getting out of the military to figure it out as a writer. Everything in my resume said I would be perfect for one of the two jobs I was offered. It's always hard to tell people that you're going to do something that you yourself don't understand. It's likely that when the soul starts calling you, it will be pre-verbal, meaning that you won't be able to tell people with perfect clarity what you are feeling. It should be stated that your job isn't to tell people how great you can be, it is to show them. It will take a while for others to understand what every fiber in your being already knows. You might call this the curse of being a human who is uniquely aware of the responsibility that their potential requires them to adopt. 
It's also important to understand that when we do get called to do something different in life, we are being called as we are, not as we think we should be. The path is revealed to those who have enough courage to trust it. We can really delay our own destiny when we believe we have to be someone else to answer our call. If that were true, we would not get the call in the first place. As I wrestled with my fate, I heard on a podcast one morning on my way to work that you should carve out time in your day to do nothing but think. It's interesting that our entire lives begin with a thought, but that we're rarely taught to treat thinking as a skill, one that we can get much better at over time. That evening, I drove to the beach to begin my first experiments with learning how to think. I grabbed a notebook and went and sat out on the sand while I watched families build sandcastles with their kids, and couples walk up and down the shoreline. Everyone is so damn put together, and here I am, drowning inside, I thought, as I sat a comfortable 25 feet from the waterline. As I sat there on the beach, with no idea what I was supposed to be doing, I resolved to try and just take the whole scene in, hoping that an answer might spontaneously come to me. Mostly, I just tried to look like I knew what I was doing so as not to alarm people walking by. If I'd had a truthful sign above me, it would have said, I have no idea what to do with my life because all of the ways that I've learned to navigate the world are no longer working for me. My ego had officially reached the limitations of its current existence, and it was clear that it had exhausted its effort. After about 20 minutes, I was bored as hell and feeling more hopeless than I had been before the experiment. Then something remarkable happened. I had the slight sense that I couldn't make the wrong decision. It was like I knew that was true in my bones for just a moment. Normally, even if we have a productive thought, it doesn't have enough authority in our minds to make it useful. This is why a host of cliche life advice just rolls off us. We all know that life is short and you only live once. We all know that effort is returned based on effort given. We all know the golden rule and everything else we're taught when we're children about what matters in life. The problem is that the thought doesn't have enough mental authority to make it true enough for us to act on. Usually this esoteric advice, whether good or not, is overshadowed by our fears, insecurities, and doubt. We've all learned to give their voice too much authority at the table, while the other, more productive voices are drowned out. More often than not, negative emotion is what compels us to action. For some reason, perhaps because of the scene I watched play out, this time I unequivocally knew that I could not make the wrong decision. I was watching a family build a sandcastle, and I saw that they were trying to protect it as the tide came up. They dug and dug, frantically trying to create a moat to diverge the water around the castle that they had spent hours building. This became obviously futile as the tide continued to rise, washing over their moat into the city walls. It seemed like the kid and I suddenly understood the same thing at the same moment. He began to jump up and down, splashing and stomping all over their creation, laughing and dancing. The mom, who had been digging as quickly as she could, turned around and looked bewildered. No, what are you doing, she said. It was all going away anyway, he replied. Or perhaps it was the Buddha that replied through him. In any case, he got it. And at that moment, I sort of got it too. I had been trying to look at my new life through my old lens. I was trying to figure out how to salvage what I had already built. Going into a government job would have allowed me to transfer benefits and pay and literally not skip a beat. But the tide was coming. The tide is always coming, and everything that we build is a sandcastle. We can fight it, or we can dance and laugh and try our best to approach it with the understanding that that child seemed to find. Furthermore, we always take the essence of what we've learned through effort with us to the next build. We couldn't possibly start over in a true sense because we always take all that we've put into what we've done. 
The ego wants to take the label of what we've done, but labels and words are always secondary to their meaning. Due to the fact that the ego is created through pattern thought, you will notice that it has a certain point of view. As your consciousness expands throughout your life and you move to a new point, you'll find that the view also changes. Going forward, when I write about ego death, it is best understood as a death of your current point of view. Once you know more, you can't go back to living in your old ways. New knowledge makes new demands of us, and we must learn to flow as life flows if we want to reduce the friction as we move through it. Perhaps this is why the ancient mystic Lao Tzu said, The world is won by those who let it go. As we let go of what we know, we find new perspectives and new paths, and those bring us into new worlds. This is the process of personal evolution. The moment when we decide to pivot is when we realize something incredible about our lives. The outer limits of our capabilities are defined by the space between our ears. There are no rules to pivoting these days. There's nothing actually stopping you, except about a thousand thoughts a day that tell you that you can't. We've always known this, but each person must come to find it in their own time. This is why, despite the path you take to self-realization, you will always inevitably arrive back at the realization that the person standing in your way is you. A lifetime of following the ego can make it difficult to feel the soul's nudge. Since our world is in the stage where the ego rules and has for years, the systems we've constructed are not very good at helping you develop your soul's path. For most people, the pivot away from the ego begins when they look around in their own lives and realize that all of the material they've spent their lives emphasizing is providing them little in terms of actual satisfaction. This is typically the precursory feeling toward existential dilemma. You can hear the separate cries of the ego all through pop culture, from music to television. Once you start to tune into it, you'll hear the impassioned pleas in pop music lamenting and perhaps begging their estranged lover to come back and complete them. You don't hear the soft voice of the soul as much because it often comes from monasteries, poets, and the still small voice within you, if you ever get quiet enough. The voices of ego are in your face everywhere you look because they crave validation in material things. If you follow these voices, you will validate and embolden them as well as your own. The wisdom encapsulated in the soul needs nothing from you, so you won't find it until you're ready. If you really want to understand humanity, start by understanding that we will conquer a thousand external dragons before we face the one inside of ourselves. We'll do a million things, even difficult and arduous things, before we do the one thing that we're here for. We'll face the world and all of its horrors before we face ourselves and all of our power to change it. We will go on trips to find ourselves while the neglected self, along for the ride, waits patiently for us to exhaust ourselves through our foolhardy attempts to discover what we've always had. That is the journey the ego must take to arrive at its own death. Not coincidentally, it is the same journey that will lead to your true life and all of its fullness. When you do find yourself living an authentic life and following the soul, meaning that you're living somewhere that you want to live, pursuing work that is meaningful to you, and associated with people who share your value system, then motivation, discipline, and the other qualities that are prized as habits of success tend to become a byproduct of that life instead of something you have to constantly keep after yourself to achieve. This is difficult to understand if you've spent your life accepting less than you deserve. What you will find if you ever get on your true path is that none of those things worked out for a specific reason. The ego was incorrectly positioning you for impact. We have an incredible opportunity to celebrate the uniqueness of the 7 billion people on the planet today. Instead, the prevailing message by society, one that's cooperated by the ego, 
is to subjugate whatever makes you different for the sake of fitting in, and then climb ladders leaning against buildings that you may or may not care about. Throughout our lives, we're exposed to inputs that treat us more like a pinball, bouncing us around all of the different rules and expectations we are expected to adhere to and navigate. Then one day, we turn 18 and they tell us to start making decisions that will affect the rest of our lives. We take the list of shoulds, supposed tos, and expectations, and then we do our best to craft a life that we don't completely hate. And we then find that we're strict on ourselves about how much we can pivot. At the risk of sounding crass, How could such a system lead to anything other than mass depression? With high hopes and a somewhat incomplete roadmap, we begin to throw ourselves into things prized by the ego, hoping that they will get to the happily ever after we grew up adoring on TV. With no real training about how to think about the things we want in life, we often end up putting our hope on the whimsical intentions of the world around us. When this is our roadmap, contentment eludes us. Over the years, we were taught what to do, but rarely how to think. The problem is that when what we should do doesn't yield the contentment we were promised, we're out of options as the emphasis in our learning models today doesn't help us analyze the problem while accounting for the full spectrum of what it means to be human. We have nuances and intricacies that need to be accounted for, and since the ego has a deep desire to fit in and not look different than others, we find that it desires to repress our nuances and act as if they don't exist. The problem with repressing our innate desires is that it doesn't work. From a psychological standpoint, what happens is that the same urges end up being expressed, but in a way that you can't control. These expressions become known as shadows of our personality and are pushed outside of our awareness. Since our ego has decided that it doesn't want to be associated with them, it relinquishes control over them and banishes them into the metaphorical underworld. This is also why the hero's journey will inevitably take you toward the things you've rejected, because you must learn to claim all that you actually are if you're going to work toward any sense of wholeness. When you don't deal with your shadows, you end up pulling the people around you into them, and then you become someone that by your own definition, you do not like very much. Cue the self-loathing that we are all too familiar with. Cue the many people who live their lives with the one goal of not becoming like their parents while growing into a mirror image of them. The further you push the undesirable traits about yourself away from your own conscious awareness, the less control you will be given over them. This is without exception. If we are to be whole all by ourselves and stop playing the game of looking for the world to validate us, We must accept all of who we are, especially the parts of ourselves that cast us as the villain in our stories. You can only change what you have the courage to own. Outside of dealing with our shadows and integrating them into our personality, we're also never taught how to go about drawing our own conclusions about the many situations in which we will find ourselves in, specifically when those situations deal with existential matters. We aren't given a framework for how to process the metaphysical, the unexplainable, or the existential because the ego operates only in the physical plane. If we only value what we can measure and quantify, we will continue to misunderstand how we should handle all of the mystery that occurs within and beyond us. We are told never to discuss religion, money, or politics in public. In reality, these are the things that plague us daily. We are essentially encouraged to keep our conversations at a surface level, though human beings have unimaginable depth. So much so that few of us will ever actually fathom the true magnitude of our own existence. 
The truth is that becoming a full-fledged adult is rife with responsibilities we aren't ready for, life-altering situations we can't make sense of, interactions with people who let us down in dreams that never quite manifest in the physical world. Is there any way that we can actually figure out what we really think about things if we don't talk about them openly? It is only in debate that we figure out what we really think. For that matter, it is only in debate that we figure out what other people actually think. Without taking the time to truly understand another's point of view, the ego is content to build a straw man out of opposing arguments and knock them over victoriously. The ego's ivory tower will get higher and higher, and as a result, you will get further and further from the people in your life. If we are truly going to solve any back-and-forth argument, it won't be because we cling to our world of absolutes. It will be because we have the courage to put the ego's manufactured sense of self down and actually stand where another stands. We do not have to agree with each other to achieve peace. We have to be willing to sit in the uncomfortable paradox that our lives actually are. And we have to be able to sit there without the need to be right or morally climb over the top of someone else. We just have to be. The most difficult proposition for the ego to accept is that it does not have to do anything at all to earn its existence. For this reason, the world will not know peace until the individual knows it in their own heart. Until then, there will be somewhere else we have to get and someone else we have to conquer. We have to start talking about these things if we ever want to step off the merry-go-round. Remember, it is the soul that acts as the light in your life. When the ego does its best to keep aspects of yourself in the shadows, you must counteract that desire by pulling everything into the light. Every single one of these things is continuing to shape the ongoing narrative inside of our heads, which will ultimately be expressed through our actions. What do your everyday actions say about the current degree to which your ego is formed? The degree that we don't know ourselves is the degree that, one, we aren't in control of our actions, and two, we'll continue to dwell on the inconsequential aspects of life that don't matter. You have to know yourself if you want to have any hope of knowing what really matters. Since one's value system is individually held, only you can know what really matters to you. This is why you are the only person who ultimately holds the answers for your life. This is also why most people will give you poor advice when you are at a crossroads in your life. Most do not have the expanded consciousness that would allow them to give you unbiased advice. Instead, they're going to tell you what they think they should do if they were in your position. The result is often that we take advice from people we don't want to be like and over the long term, grow resentful of the world around us. Though it is certainly not always the case, many times resentment of any kind can be cured simply by having the courage to stand on one's own value system without being influenced by the world around them. We have to talk about all of the things with which we struggle so that we can form a worldview that will allow us to make sense of it all. Our incomplete view of the world around us caused by our repression and denial leads us to place an emphasis on the wrong things. To understand this properly, look no further than the death sentence we associate with failure. We build it up so much in our minds that we are petrified of even considering the possibility of failure. The reality is that failure is just as much a part of the human experience as breathing or laughing, just as death is a part of life. It is half of the equation, yet our incorrect framing has built a risk-averse society that trembles at the thought of its own dreams. Our skewed views of ourselves and our lives causes us to live as a shell of what we could be as we maneuver around everything we fear. In so doing, our own fear is what boxes us in and limits our growth. The truth is that failure is much more of a fork in the road than it is a roadblock. 
We would be much better off learning to make sense of our failures so that we can move forward and continue to forge on without retreating to a lesser life. A proper view of the world will help you do that. That is the power in finding the correct perspective. Perspective is not what you are looking at as much as it is where you are looking from. You can look at understanding all day long, but until you make it the place you operate out of, you will continue to find unnecessary friction in your life. Most of us spend our time defending our thoughts and worldview instead of listening to the other side. The ego will dig its heels in to bolster its own view, while the soul will be open to understanding. The ego will have us convinced that we are correct, even if being correct is not serving us. What we must remember is that the information that has the possibility of improving our lives is what we do not yet know. If what you knew were sufficient, you would be self-actualized and not reading this book. You don't have to suspend reason, only learn to hold space for the fact that the most important information in the world is what you don't know. This should be regardless of how much the human side of you, the ego, wants to build itself up with self-importance and being correct. In short, we should debate for truth instead of arguing to be right. A romantic relationship serves to show this example perfectly. If you want to grow with your partner, you must remember that when a problem arises, it is you two against your problem and not your two egos against each other. When egos dig their heels in, they are typically far enough apart to cast a shadow. So darkness between two people grows. If, however, you can put your ego's perspective down, you will find that your resulting connection with your partner provides enough light to extinguish the darkness growing between you. If you're unsure about whether you are arguing from the perspective of ego or not, you should ask yourself how you really feel when you're right. Do you feel better if you're right, and the result is that your partner feels worse? The ego will never take the time to consider another person until you do. In contrast, when things go rightly for us as opposed to failure, we become susceptible to losing ourselves in the success. The ego will conflate our success with our own self-worth, and then we end up giving our identity away to something that doesn't deserve it. This happens when we define ourselves by our own current success. When what goes up inevitably comes down, we find the world quickly strips us of our self-importance. You can see the roller coaster of emotion that the ego causes us to live on. It's a life that is defined by always chasing yet never feeling the satisfaction of attaining what's being chased. Quite frankly, it's exhausting. Many of us live our lives with unimaginable potential, yet unimaginable is all it will ever be because we've never developed the ability to pick the path that will allow it to blossom, and we're afraid of the adversity that will allow us to forge it. Hard work, technical prowess, good habits, even high intelligence, plus a litany of other traits that are professed to make you more successful in the multitude of life's arenas, do you no good if you can't mentally reconcile the events that take place within the course of your life and find somewhere productive to put those experiences? The truth is, when you talk about success from a societal point of view, well-being and a sense of meaning never seem to make the list, yet we're all hoping for them. While the character traits that breed success from a material perspective are quite well known, the ability to navigate those traits and still contend with our own humanity is a dance that requires much more grace and attention. Attention to our intentions and grace for ourselves when we fall short of them. If you begin to treat yourself with grace and attention, you'll find that your disposition towards others improves as well. Those that are downstream from our lives are either the beneficiaries or unlucky recipients of however we treat ourselves. For this reason, we must also understand that the ego is not the enemy, 
treating yourself as the enemy is likely to create division within your own psyche that is hard to get over. You've probably heard this before, but a house divided against itself cannot stand. Your ego is the vehicle through which you experience the physical world. Our problem is not that it is the enemy. Our problem is that we've been letting it drive when it has no business doing so. We must get it on board with our soul's intentions. The ego has been left to keep the soul captive while you are asleep. It will make a mess of things out of fear and not knowing what should be truly valued. Like all things that are truly free, however, this captivity won't last. If you seek it, you will eventually wake up to what your deepest desires for your life are. At that point, your path will begin to change. When you're on your soul's path, you'll look back and realize that despite the pain and confusion, you never made one wrong decision. How else could you have gotten here? True identity is always found when you release the desires of the ego and free yourself to find a higher perspective. Only you can decide to begin walking down that path. This doesn't mean that you won't find happiness when you are living inside of the ego, because you will. You'll find tons of pleasure as well. It will just be the kind of pleasure that pushes you to get more, because there will never be enough. What you won't find is lasting joy. Joy comes to us as a result of finding meaning. Meaning will come when you live in a way that aligns your value system with your character. It's been said that all of the fear in the world can be traced back to the fear of death. It wouldn't matter nearly as much when things went wrong if you knew deep down that everything was ultimately going to be okay. It's a cliff we're all heading toward, which creates a rather large amount of anxiety. Your ego is deeply human. It is the part of you that exists here in the physical space. Deep down, it understands that it won't be making the trek with you to the other side when the hourglass finally runs out of sand. All the grasping and attaining are attempts to root your ego in something solid something that exists here. It's like an hourglass in the way that it can try its hardest to keep a chokehold on the middle, but the sand just keeps falling. Each grain of sand brings with it a little more anxiety about how much might be left. The soul understands what its current keeper does not. What you bring with you after you are gone is not what the ego can attain, but rather what the soul can become.